0: Welcome to the Eat Well, Move Well podcast, season two, episode five, guest star Monica Volkmar of DanceStronger.com.
1: So today we're talking with Monica Volkmar. Monica is a dancer, a strength coach a writer and educator. She's a passionate mover and explorer of our inner space. Her mission is to educate dancers, and as a writer, blogger, and teacher, I believe she does that fantastically. But what really drew me to talk to her was a passion I have as well. Uh, And I'm going to use her words when she says that everyone in the world, she wishes everyone in the world could understand and feel for themselves, how the way they hold themselves posturally, their body language, and their movement affect their psychology. In preparation for this talk, Monica shared her passion to impart on others something she has been on a journey to discover herself, how much better it feels, how your quality of life improves, and your understanding of self expands when you work on improving your physiological self. Her work with dancers transcends the dance world, stretches over to all of us humans in that we all need this awareness of how we are in our bodies to be our best selves. So, Monica, awesome to talk to you. We are super excited to have you on board.
0: That's great. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to be here, too. Thank you, guys. So, would you like to just say in a few words, give us some background, tell us more about how you first started dancing and how you kind of joined these two worlds, the world of dancing Uh, You were a pro dancer, then you went into strength training, and now you incorporate incredibly powerful modalities to help people um, of all skills, including the amazing dancers you work with, to perform better and be better selves.
2: Sure. So I don't want to talk too much about myself because I feel like we have way more interesting things to talk about than me. Um, And it's a little bit of a stretch to say that I had a amazing professional dance career, because as soon as it started, it pretty much ended after getting injured pretty badly. But um, I started dancing first when I was like six years old, I did some ballet classes, and then I decided that it wasn't for me after, I think, something to do with my brothers making fun of me. So that caused me to quit pretty quickly. Uh, I got back into dancing later on after I tried gymnastics and didn't like it because it was too competitive. And I started doing jazz dance. Uh, I really loved it, but I realized that to get better at the technique, I would need to do more ballet classes to really develop uh, more technique to support it. So then I fell in love with ballet, and eventually I ended up at Ryerson University, where I studied dance and got a Bachelor of Fine Arts. Unfortunately, about partway through my last semester there, I became injured, and that was really a blessing in disguise because I don't think if I had so many injuries and was forced to stop dancing that I would be here speaking with you today about why I care about the things that you said about helping people discover and unlock the potential of their bodies and how it can make them better people. And I think you kind of need to hit a very low point and have it hurt bad enough for you to want to discover how to unlock your mind's potential with your body and just move better in general. Um, yeah, I guess that'll do for now about me. Yeah, that's that's fantastic.
1: So you mentioned that you first got injured, and this is sort of how you started coming into this world of, you know, self-healing in a way through movement. What was that kind of guided you? Did you, did you
2: meet certain teachers or did you do all the work on your own? <laughs> so when I first became injured, I was also simultaneously getting into the world of fitness and it was for very superficial reasons because of course I wanted to look better and there was a lot of pressure as a dancer to look a certain way and be thin and I unfortunately was struck by a particularly crippling sense of self-doubt and body dysmorphia and always thought that I wasn't good enough so getting into fitness was a way of regulating my weight and trying to look better and be more thin and more toned and all of those things we all want. Um, but then it became something more after getting injured, a side effect that I didn't expect was that it was improving my dancing. And I, I didn't really realize that that would be something that would, that could happen. But my dance teachers started telling me that things were going better. Like I, my turns were better and my technique was improving in my jumps and my balancing, and things just really felt like they were clicking for me in ways they hadn't before. Um, But of course, I didn't want to tell them that I was lifting weights and things because that was very taboo still. Many of my teachers were pretty old school. So I just told them that, yeah, I'm starting to understand my body better. Things are just starting to make sense. Unfortunately, I was becoming so overtrained from all the hours of rehearsals and classes. And then on top of that, I was at the gym like four times a week, which was way excessive considering the amount of dancing I was doing. So inevitably, things started to hurt. And of course, I wasn't paying attention to those things. I just wanted to keep going harder. And I was forced to stop. But I was also working at that time with a personal trainer who I had met at the gym. And we started working together. And he opened my mind to that strength training didn't have to be just about, or working out in general, didn't have to be just about aesthetics. It could be about becoming more functional and improving alignment and improving posture and things that I would eventually learn in more depth, but they were all new ideas for me at the time. And I think it was that mostly that really helped me to sort out some technical things that were plateauing. Um, however, like I mentioned, the overtraining, it wasn't it wasn't really working out so well. So I, I do believe that had I not been overtrained, I probably would have noticed a lot more exciting changes in strength and in my performance abilities but it just didn't go the way it should have gone
1: yeah yeah what makes sense that you know kind of on this new path you were trying to maybe get the best of it and sometimes we think that more is better
2: nope (laughs) not
1: always um so I I know you mentioned that strength training is kind of frowned upon by more traditional
2: teachers. Would you say a couple more words about that? Yeah. So I think things are changing and many more ballet, in, in particular ballet teachers, are starting to realize that their students need to develop strength and fitness on top of the work they're doing on technique and classes because that's not really addressed. Um, But still many of them are in the mindset that doing anything like a squat or anything with extra resistance or anything that isn't Pilates or core specifically is going to make them first bulk up and develop unsightly muscles or two, it will interfere with their flexibility or three, it'll decrease their turnout if they're training in parallel or it will just totally undo all of their technical training. And I realized that there are not as many teachers like this anymore. And it's so nice to hear. And I, in particular, when I go to do some workshops at York University, they have a really great staff, a really great faculty that have, uh, they promote best practices. And I, whenever I go and I ask them, oh, do your teachers say this to you? Which are things maybe that I, I was told from my teachers about sucking in your stomach and things like that and they're like no our teachers don't tell us to do that I'm like that's amazing that is that is <laughs> so things are changing and it's really lovely to see but I still I used to work with some dancers who they told me that their teachers wanted them to not do squats when they trained with me and wanted them to not work their legs at all really but somehow but somehow get stronger in their hips and improve their mobility, but not to do anything that required them actually getting up on their feet and working their leg muscles because quads are bad. So, so that was a little frustrating. And I think it really is the most old school generation of valley teachers, which are stepping out of the scene and a new generation of teachers are coming in. So I have hope for the future.
1: Yeah, very cool. And um, in a, Kind of previous talk, we had talked a little bit about um, just body image and just the whole image of the dancer starting to change. And Roland had a story there. I think he asked you about a classical ballet dancer that um, recently became popular who's really, really muscular compared to that traditional – that traditional –
0: who's a she's uh I don't know what you call the the, the lead ballerina for um
2: are you talking um, about Misty Copeland? Yes. Yes. That's her name. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's uh, really inspirational for a lot of dancers who are told that they will never be professional. Or will never be successful because they don't have the perfect body type. And I think that's something that is really starting to change. And that's really nice to see.
1: Yeah, I remember when I started dancing, we were pre-selected. Like several (laughs) girls were pre-selected because we had a certain body type. Um, And I didn't have any awareness of why that was done. But now, you know, years later, I look back and I was like, oh yeah, they were pre-selecting us to have these mm-hmm. certain qualities, um, you know, having a certain kind of foot and having a hypermobile low back. I guess is why I got chosen. <laughs>
0: so it's like selecting the, the best horse and uh, the best colt and breeding yeah. it, taking right. it through the, you know, you know, picking which path of life they're going to go through. Right,
1: and I I remember that. I don't know how it was happening in American schools, but in Eastern Europe, like first or second grade, would have people who would come and observe our PE classes, Hmm. and they would pull out certain kids for wrestling and certain kids for weightlifting and certain kids for football. So very, very early selection. Um, And then once it was time for junior high, certain kids would go into sports schools. So it's like a high school but with a very, very heavy influence on in athletics. And if you were chosen for one of those, that was pretty awesome.
2: That's hardcore.
1: Yeah, but you have to be chosen. Uh, <laughs> <just kidding. laughs> yeah, so I was chosen for ballet school, which started earlier. It started in the fourth grade. Wow. My parents said no, for which, I, <laughs> for which I'm eternally
2: grateful. <laughs> I think it's something you should be allowed to choose. Right, 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 right. I got
0: selected for Dungeons and Dragons School. (laughs) (laughs) I wish my parents would have said no.
1: Oh, right. It would have have made you a much worse writer, though. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're a good writer because of your Dungeons and Dragons schooling.
0: Maybe.
1: So so that traditional um, body image of the dancer who's not eating and who's really thin and um, who doesn't have any muscle – that's starting to kind of come, come off the stage a little bit.
2: Yeah, it seems that way, at least in Misty's case. And I think that's going to open a lot of doors and inspire uh, another generation of ballet dancers who might have not been selected. But now that they can see that it is possible to still be a beautiful ballet dancer. And I don't think she's by any means, you know, jacked. But just compared to her friends, I guess she's got a little bit of extra muscle
1: right right i I feel like I'm a, a relatively normal size, and whenever I have dinner with friends who professionally dance back home when I go back, they're like half my size, yeah
0: which
1: is pretty scary
0: what about um, for for male ballet dancers like are there similar rules or are they really do they need to be really small and
2: not- you know what I don't know so much about that. That's a really good question. I'm sure there is quite a bit of pressure on them to look a certain way as well. I think that it's tough if they're shorter. And I think that there's uh, more of a demand for taller male dancers, but I could be totally wrong about that. I'm not as uh, in the know about the professional ballet world. My world was modern dance and I would go to the ballet every once in a while, but I really don't care so much about the politics of it. So I never really got too invested mentally.
1: Right. One thing that I, I feel we can kind of take away is this sort of looking at dancers as athletes as well. And just like we talk about nutrition and recovery for regular athletes, why should dancers be any different?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Right. Food is, you know, pretty much fuels your recovery and your performance. And it's, it's unfair to kind of divide the arts when the art is a physical art.
2: Yeah. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. That is a huge conversation in itself.
1: Right, right. So tell me, how are dancers impacted by working with you? Um, I know that you've worked with a great number of dancers through your, um, not just in person, but through your online program. Mm -hmm. What are some things that they notice?
2: So I guess the, the main thing is the work that we do on becoming aware of things like what pain feels like and how to work with it. Um, A lot of dancers are quite dissociated from sensations in their bodies. Um, And I'm, I'm not trying to say that they need to be afraid of feeling pain, but that they tend to, because they're working at a, a place where their brain is so focused on the steps and being in the moment that it's really easy to completely ignore pain. And it actually comes quite in handy when you're performing. I remember just having really terrible pains in my feet and in my back. But when you're on stage, you don't feel any of that. And you can just keep going. Unless, of course, you fall and break your ankle or something. And then you have to stop because your bone's broken. But it's really, really easy To dissociate from pain and part of training I like to help dancers to tune back in with what that information is so that they can deal with it appropriately so a lot of it in the beginning has to do with neuroregulation and getting them to breathe and get in tune with how their body actually feels what are their baselines what's their alignment like at rest what is their movement like and helping them to discover and explore that I do work with a lot of normal people, too, and I think the main difference between working with dancers and the difference between working with, I guess, regular people, quote-unquote, is that they have an entirely different level of body awareness they can tap into and a desire to improve their movement quality as opposed to many people who just want fitness and they don't care as much about the quality of their movement or understand why it could be important to work on. Um, So just this past week, I worked with a dancer who came in and our first session together, she used words like, I want to make my movement more effortless and I want guidance on where to start to reprogram how my body works. So I'm not using muscles for things they weren't supposed to do. And opposed to maybe a non dancer who would come in and not be able to clearly articulate what they want beyond. I don't want to be in pain or I just want to be stronger or I want to get fit. Uh, So I I love that dancers just seem to be able to appreciate those subtle shifts as important ones because in dance, the difference between a good dancer and a great dancer can often be just something very subtle, but it's important and you can see it. Um, So it sounds
1: like like they're a little bit more in the process other than just what the goal looks like because it's more of an inside kind of... inside awareness and an inside experience of what movement feels like versus what you look like as a result of moving.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's really rewarding to be able to work with people like that. And as much as I also love working with the average general population, I, I really do feel like it's quite a treat to be able to help people who really do appreciate Need to work on these things and not just come in and get a workout. Although, there are some dancers who are a little bit less into it, and that's okay, they'll learn.
1: Sure, it's interesting what you mentioned
2: earlier that dancers are
1: not very well embodied and that they dissociate from their bodies. Because, from a kind of like a regular human perspective, we look at dancers like they're sort of demigods, you know. <laughs> incredibly they're almost like one step under Cirque du Soleil like if not up there it's just like wow how does a human even move like that and so you imagine that they possess some superhuman strength and a they're super strong and b they're able to control their body um both with their mind and physically in ways that you could never attain Mm -hmm yet I'm hearing something different from you, and that's, that's very interesting.
2: Yeah, and it's not that dancers aren't strong. Um, they are incredibly strong, but a lot of it, like you mentioned, is coming from their cognitive ability and their access they have to their brain's power. Um, and I think, I think that in, in gymnastics, for physical strength, because of their need to, to do more tricks, Um, But even in competitive dance where they have to do tricks, they neglect the idea that they need to do extra training for it. So in many dance schools, the idea of doing supplementary strength training or conditioning or movement training is completely neglected. Aside from there's like the odd conditioning or Pilates class, which in my experience weren't very effective and probably because I was forced to do them at 8 a.m., or that they were really just focused on lying on the floor and trying to feel the ab burn. So it just really wasn't what we needed. And it's interesting uh, because dancers do seem so strong, but there is a study that I still have to try to find the citation for and pull that up so we can post it. But it blew my mind because it was saying that many collegiate level dancers have lower fitness levels than many sedentary individuals of a similar age. And that's so crazy because how are dancers doing these things they're doing if they're actually have less fitness than someone who just kind of sits all day and doesn't do anything active. It doesn't make sense at all. And that just shows you the incredible power of their minds to create these movements that seem so athletic, but without any foundation of athleticism and that kind of boggles your mind. Um, And there are studies too, that show that average technique classes And I'm not referring to like Zumba or dance fitness, but actual technique classes that they don't provide enough stimulus to improve aspects of fitness either. So in a technique class, dancers aren't really learning or developing fitness. They're developing techniques, very, very specific techniques. But then they get thrown into doing a piece of choreography that might be 10 minutes where they're dancing continuously, but they have never trained for that and so they're exposed to that new level of aerobic or anaerobic or strength, that new level that they've never trained for in their lives. And I think that's when things can start to get a little bit risky and then dancers start to realize, oh, shit, I wish that I had actually done some kind of extra training for this time to start jogging. And then you start adding on new types of training when it's maybe not the appropriate time. And right. That's what I did for sure.
1: Yeah. That's very interesting that you mentioned endurance and just cardiovascular fitness, because it seems like there's such a huge, and I know we're going to talk about this later a little bit. There's such a huge component that's nervous system regulation. And you'd imagine mm-hmm. the stress, like the performance stress where you're being watched. And there's a certain level, at least in my um, classical ballet experience, there was a lot of competition between you know who gets selected or how far in front do you dance in a, in a certain performance and and Mm -hmm. do you get to do a solo and all of that, which definitely jacks up your nervous system. So now you're functioning at a level that's even, you know, higher stress and and higher um, demands out of your cardiovascular
2: system, out of your nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. And we just don't think of it that way. And no one ever tells us that it's just push harder, push harder. Don't stop. Don't take breaks. He's sore. It's I, feel
1: like, I feel like I still have some of this this morning. Roland and I did a, um, a class where you have a heart rate monitor on. And so we're joining a group. I'm feeling relatively calm. But then we looked at our heart rate data from the class. And he started at like 60 beats per minute. And I started at 100. Like well, That was my starting doing nothing. <laughs> Just because I was with other people. Like that. Um, I'm, already, like, I'm already in that mode.
2: Right. That's interesting.
1: <laughs> it's a good time for that motorcycle to come through. That's exactly how I felt. <laughs> yeah. So, back to you. We mentioned core strength a couple of times. And I know you have possibly one of the coolest, uh, succinct ways to. I'll look at traditional core training versus more reflexive core training and I'll, I'll link to your um, table um, in in the resources in the in the notes under the podcast on our website. Uh, but would you would you talk a little bit about core strength and kind of the traditional understanding of core strength versus how you teach core strength?
2: Sure. Um, What I'm saying is nothing new and groundbreaking. And sometimes I don't really even know what I'm talking about. So hopefully I do a decent job right now. So I guess the difference is the way that I speak about core training and try to approach it, in particular with dancers, and I guess with regular people too, is that it's, it's not the way that many people think about it. And I mean, especially dancers who for them doing core training is like lying on the floor and doing Pilates 100s and like pumping their arms and holding their breath. So quite a bit different from that. So I guess the, the main thing is something I, I learned a while ago was that core stability isn't about control and trying to be still and trying to be stable which I was trying to do by doing things like planks and just trying to prevent movement in general and keep my spine very rigid. And it wasn't until I was introduced to the idea of core mobility that my mind was opened to new possibilities of movements, because I realized that, huh, your spine has 33 joints in it. And something that has that many joints can't possibly have been designed to stay completely still. That can't be its natural state. And this is something that I learned most recently from studying with Gary Ward and Anatomy in Motion and his concept of core mobility is that you must be able to extreme both ends of the spectrum in order to find center. So when we're cueing dancers to find like neutral spine or be centered, but we're just using words like tighten your abs and brace and be neutral or something very controlling in our word choice, that it really does not allow us to move the way that our bodies were designed. So the first thing that I really like to to assess and work with is do you have requisite spinal mobility before that we before we start to work on stabilizing? Because if you don't have mobility and you're trying to stop movement, that doesn't make sense. Why would you want to stop something that isn't moving in the first place? And do you think that dance is done with a rigid spine? Well, for me it was. But that's not the best way of doing it necessarily. Another thing that I think blows a lot of minds for dancers because they tend to hold their breath a lot is that the notion of breath control and intra-abdominal pressure being huge components of core stability, although I really don't want to call it stability. I'm still searching for different words to speak about working the core or training the core or whatever. I just I don't even know what to say anymore. I, I sound... I feel like I sound like an idiot when I say core stability because I don't really know what I mean, but using the the breath to own a full exhalation to get yourself back into a more flexed position so that you can have somewhere to move from and somewhere to somewhere that you can properly activate your diaphragm and somewhere that you can become in a more calm state to start to learn And start to make changes in your body. I think that's huge and something that isn't really addressed in classes like in Pilates. They don't really take the time to teach you that this is what it feels like to have a full exhalation. And from this position, we can better work with your muscles of your trunk. And we can better work with your muscles of your breath. And you're not going to be in a stressed out state mentally. Right so i I really like to emphasize the before we start to train your core and the muscles, you need to be able to actually exhale, then we can start to work on maybe doing something with your muscles specifically, right. and the idea of creating interabdominal pressure is something that is pretty lacking in many dance classes and many training classes or conditioning classes for dancers because the idea of actually taking an inhalation that expands your abdomen with air is just thought of as not appealing aesthetically. So we're told to suck in our stomach and breathe into your chest because then your stomach won't expand. So when you're wearing tight costumes and spandex and those lovely things, it won't make it look like you have a belly, which of course is terrible. (laughs) So just the idea that you need to expand is not something that is encouraged in dance, although it's really necessary for creating an airbag for your spine to allow it to move freely. Another thing that maybe is a little unconventional is thinking that muscles need to lengthen before they can contract. So if we're training our abs in a concentric way, just doing crunches and just shortening and shortening and shortening. We're neglecting that whole other end of the spectrum that things need to lengthen first before. So they get the stimulus to react to that. And that's where the reactive core idea comes in that if you, if you give the joints or put the joints in a situation where they are allowing muscles to lengthen and the muscles get that stimulus after being lengthened to contract, then you don't really need to think about things engaging and tightening because you're putting your joints in the position that they understand where to come back out of, and things will just work naturally without having to think about it. Right. That's Mm
1: -hmm. what root are. You don't have to think about it.
2: And it saves you so much energy. And when teachers are in class trying to remind us constantly, engage your core, engage your core, pull up, suck it in, control, it really just drains you because you shouldn't need to think about it so much. You should be able to train your body in a way that it becomes very intelligent and very reactive to all movement possibilities. And if you're not training that way, you're doing things like crunches or doing lots of concentric work that you're trying to feel the burn and never allowing the muscles to lengthen and feel length and return to the start position in a reactive, unconscious way, then you're missing out on a lot of movement potential and you're just creating that stability without mobility, which is not super productive.
1: No, it's not. It's sort of like this martial arts concept of like being like water. Right. And yeah. you, can't, you can't flow when you're a cube of ice, you know, and <laughs> yeah. that's something that I try to explain to my, you know, less embodied, most of my clients are, still on, on their path to start feeling their bodies. And oftentimes I'll just use this metaphor and they're, you know, there's ahs and o's as they kind of start getting it, that their body is very much alive. And, yeah. you know, it's got a very kind of oceanic property where you have, you know, ebbs and flows and high tides and low tides and waves that come and waves that go. But if you're frozen, none of that is available to you. Yeah. And, and when you have dancers, like I'm thinking of dancing as this sort of free to move in any plane, multiple combination of planes. And then if you look at traditional core training, it's like this sagittal concentric crap. And <laughs> and, and it's like, how, how did we ever get there? But then I look at some of the stories that my clients tell me, especially those people that come from, you know, I had this pain and then I was in therapy and this is what I learned. So instead of looking at it, as you know that concentric training or the bracing or the holding was the orthotic that allowed me to move from excruciating pain to semi-normal function and then there's a next level which is integrating into reflexive movement they never get to that place Mm
2: -hmm. like
1: first for whatever reason we get stuck in therapeutic approaches which just don't that's not
2: life yeah you're absolutely right
1: we just can't live. We just can't live there. And you wrote a fantastic blog post on flexion recently. So I'm going to link that in the, in the show <laughs> as well. Uh, as somebody who, um, whose spine looked like a broomstick until a couple <laughs> of years ago, you know, I'm a, I'm a, um, I'm a recovering extension holic. Um, it's just so nice to, to have access to that. It's almost like, um, You know, I think of dancers and my own body maybe is kind of how I get there. But there's so much extension focus because of the looks of the art. And, um, and, And that sort of extension focus gets you stuck in inhalation. And so the diaphragm doesn't have its full excursion. And then even if you wanted to, you couldn't expand. And because of all of the performance anxiety, now you're in a startle response, which looks like extension. So you have these two (laughs) levels of, you know, you have this primal survival mechanism where, you know, you look at tribal dancing. It's got nothing to do with how we dance for classical reasons. And, you know, tribal dance is an extension focused, you know, it's like all over the place, you know. (laughs) And, um, and it's wonderful and it's rhythmical and y- you look at y- – I love looking at tribal dances and, and, and maybe a lot of them were done with some sort of hallucinogenic
2: kind of aids <laughs> and I'm not suggesting
1: <laughs> to our listeners that, you know, they, they um, stock up on, on some illegal, you know, mushrooms or whatever and they start to dance. But um, it, it's sort of people were writing these internal natural rhythms, and they weren't mm-hmm. extension focused. And so once you get in that extension, there's these much older than dance primal reflexes that start to turn on. And and now you're just freaking out and you're in no place to learn.
2: <laughs> yep. That describes so yep. many dancers and me to a T just you
1: know, I, I came from that. So I, I've 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 lived in that body. And, um, and I still live in it some of the days. Um, like if I'm giving a presentation, like that's like my default place. But yeah. um, until you get people on the ground in three-month baby position and all of a sudden they're like, oh, what's happening? Like I, <laughs> now my brain is remembering something else that I was able to do much earlier. So it's like, huh, maybe there is a way to come back to it.
0: You guys make me mm-hmm. feel, feel normal. Yeah. <laughs> By comparison.
2: Happy to help.
1: Anything, anything we can do, Roland. Thank anything you. we can thank do to
0: help you feel you. normal. Normally, I feel like I'm the worst one in the room. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not not sure. anymore. No. no, thank you.
1: So. <laughs> he, he's actually you're actually a pretty good mover.
0: You've well, you know, it's interesting when you talked earlier. Thank you, by the way. But when you talked earlier about how dancers have a sort of an awareness of what they want, but they and normal people, they don't know how to, how to describe it. I talk letter. Okay. Um, So I feel like I understand a lot about how to describe it in other people. And, but I don't know how to recognize it in myself. Like I don't have like Galena knows that I don't have the best body awareness, Mm -hmm. self-awareness. I don't know. Oh, do you feel it in that muscle? I don't, I don't know. Do I like, does that She'll like work on me? And then she'll say, does I feel any better? I go, I don't know. I could barely feel it before. Now I'm, it feels <laughs> the same. Does it look different? You know, like you'll have to tell me whether I feel better or not. Yeah,
1: so,
2: it's yeah. a process.
1: It, it, it is a process. And, and sometimes, you know, it takes years and a lot of quiet time, mm-hmm. which we don't get. I mean, you, you look at a typical day, there's not enough quiet time to feel yourself.
2: Yeah, that's true. It reminds me, I was seeing a, assessing a new client who was not a dancer this week, and it sounds like he was having the exact same experience as you, Roland. We were going through some movements, and I was, just wanted to get a general sense of what he could feel his body doing, and it was like zero. He's like, I, I clearly don't have any body awareness. You realize that, right? And I'm like, yeah. So the first level is you have no awareness, and then you develop some awareness that you have no awareness, and then eventually you start to develop some awareness, and then you start to be able to embody that. And so everyone's got to start at that place where they have no awareness, and then it comes to their attention, and then you can start to do something about it.
1: Very,
0: really, very cool. Yeah. It's like, have you ever seen that? The four stages of competence where exactly. you have, familiar. Like you're consciously incompetent, which means you're, you're unconsciously competent. You don't know what you don't know. Then you're consciously competent. You know what you don't know. Right? You're consciously incompetent. Then you're consciously
1: incompetent. Incom- then you're consciously competent, competent, and then you're
0: unconsciously competent. Yeah. And it just circles around. Right now yeah. but there's like these different levels of like the more you know about yourself like the more it takes you to the next level where suddenly you realize that you don't really know again
2: mm-hmm.
0: but, but you're still better than before yeah, it's like, like, so peeling
2: a, like peeling an onion yeah and or, not having awareness is good information to have too it's like oh i should probably work on this because who knows when i develop some awareness of this what else it might unlock
1: right and and as in habit formation, like one, one of the things we know in, in kind of behavior change science is that you need to realize that you're doing a habit and feel yourself doing the habit before you can change the habit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's like that with anything. Some of the exercises they'll do with clients in the beginning when they come to me is we'll just tap on their hand and say, this is my left hand. my left hand belongs to me and we'll look at the hand and then we'll look at the hand in the mirror Mm -hmm. and I'll do it with them and, and we'll do it over and over and over again until they start to feel the boundary. Like they start to feel their skin and they start to feel that this is indeed like some people have never looked at their hands and gone, Oh my God, these are my hands. And um, that's why it's so easy to do all these uh, tricks you know you can trick people that it's not their hand that it's or or that someone else's hand is their hand because we're it's so easy to disembody especially if you've been injured or if you've been in a car accident or you've been attacked um and that's kind of a nice segue into polyvagal theory you 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 may lose a relationship with that part of you temporarily um and that can be both physical or emotional you know, in a way to kind of save yourself and keep going. But then if you don't come back, if you don't embody again, then that body part is gone. It's like mm-hmm. how are you going to feel a knee injury in a part you don't embody anymore?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and people
1: will say, what do you mean I'm not in my body? And and I will never say, by the way, you know, looking at you, you're not in your body at all. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll be working and at some point they'll be like, Oh, I feel something that I've never felt before. And like the and kids are the best because kids just giggle. <laughs> kids just start to laugh and they all say the same thing. They all say this is weird. Or they'll say, <laughs> This is creepy. And when they say weird or creepy, I know that it's something new for the brain. So I'm always yeah. <laughs> I'm always I'm like, it's creepy. I'm so excited. Put a dog in the jar. That's a good day. Yeah, um, I know what you mean. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, it's kind of being open. We have so many interoceptors in the body. We have so many more receptors for interoception than we have for, uh, for movement. We have seven times more than we have for movement. And it's like we wouldn't have this many if they weren't giving us information. Mm-hmm. It's so cool. So, tell, so me cool. About, tell me about Porges and how you found about polyvagal and, and, and how that relates to dance. Because I know how it relates to trauma and how it relates to social engagement, like my work. But how does it relate to dancing?
2: So I, I discovered Stephen Porges. I don't even remember how. I must have been just on YouTube and randomly came across a video of his. I came across an interview with him. And I strongly recommend that people listen to an interview with Dr. Porges or watch one of his presentations or talks on YouTube because I won't be able to do him justice at all. But he has really fascinating ideas. So his theory creates the, the basis and the evidence for the holistic idea that effective coping and tuning in are necessary elements for keeping people and dancers in their game. So for dancers to have longevity, this is a really important thing for them to understand. Um, and it will help them recover as quickly as possible from injuries, which are pretty inevitable. So I guess the Sparks Notes version is that we know that our nervous system can be divided into the fight or flight, which is sympathetic, or the rest and digest, which is the parasympathetic branch. But what isn't commonly talked about is that we have another response, which is to immobilize which is actually a function of the parasympathetic nervous system in response to a life threat. We typically just think of the parasympathetic as like the good, calming, happy, rest and digest system. But it has this other ancient branch that actually is responsible for helping us cope with life-threatening situations by immobilizing ourselves. So when the body is unable to fight or flight or mobilize itself in response to danger, it just shuts down. And how this relates to dancers, I think, and it's something that I have experienced in myself, is that when we have injuries as dancers and we're able to dissociate from them, then that is uh, maybe not the best way of coping with that injury by dissociating. And when a dancer starts to burn out for whatever reason, they, they lose their ability to regulate their vagal tone, which helps to keep them in that parasympathetic calm state of health, growth, and restoration, which is necessary for their recovery, for their learning and developing their technique and progressing. And so then after, if they can no longer activate that system, they will enter the next tier, the sympathetic, in which the body and mind can become hypervigilant using adrenaline to keep their systems fighting to survive And unfortunately, this can't go on forever, and eventually the body is forced into the last tier, which is that old dorsal vagus pathway of the parasympathetic nervous system that immobilizes us in the face of life threat. So clearly, a burnt-out dancer isn't at risk of dying, and the brain, unfortunately, can't distinguish between a bear hunting us and us being burnt out. Chemically and physiologically, it's the exact same signal. So you shut down and injury forces you to stop and it's not your choice but this is you immobilized because you cannot activate sympathetic nervous system to help you anymore and you can't get to a calm place where you can restore and recover and it's definitely not a fun hole to dig yourself out of and unfortunately this is a hole that I'm still trying to dig myself out of just being so burnt out and having to be forced to forced to mo- uh, mobilize myself after injuries um, but the good news is is that there are really simple ways to improve your vagal tone and keep yourself in that state of health and growth and restoration and optimal coping. And it's as easy or as simple as doing breathing exercises, getting good quality social interaction, playing, playing an instrument.
0: Hey, it's Roland here with a brief interruption where there was an
2: internet hiccup
0: Google Hangouts crashed, but we are back with Monica right about
2: now. Okay, are we are we on?
1: Yeah, we are on. So sort of the Sparks Notes for ver- notes version version is where we ended.
2: Ah, okay, cool. So we know that our, our nervous system can be divided into uh, two branches: the sympathetic, which is the fight or flight, or the parasympathetic, the rest and digest. But what isn't commonly taught or talked about is that we have another response to immobilize, which is actually a function of the parasympathetic nervous system in response to a life threat. So it's not just that the parasympathetic branch is responsible for keeping us calm and helping us recover, but it also is something that in ancient days, in back in the times when maybe we were reptiles, our ancestors that immobilizing was a really useful thing to be able to do if someone was about to eat you. So when the body is unable to fight or flight, the next logical thing for it to do is to immobilize itself and shut down. So in relation to dancers and injuries, when a dancer starts to burn out for whatever reason and they lose their ability to regulate their vagal tone and keep themselves in that nice parasympathetic calm straight where they can heal and grow and, recover and they are able to properly learn and progress in their technique classes, then they enter the, the next state of the nervous system into the sympathetic state in which their body and mind will become hypervigilant and needs to keep them, needs to be mobile and use adrenaline and other, other uh, hormones to keep them fighting to survive their classes but unfortunately, this cannot go on forever and their bodies are eventually forced into the last tier, which is the old dorsal vagus pathway of the parasympathetic nervous system that will immobilize them in the face of a life threat. Clearly, the being burnt out as a dancer isn't really a risk of dying and it's not threatening to their lives. But the brain can't distinguish between this real f- fear of dying and just being burnt out So chemically and physiologically, it's the same signal that your nervous system is getting. And so your body decides to shut down and your brain shuts down and getting an injury that's been going on for so long like that. And you're finally burning out because you can no longer just uh, be in that sympathetic state to deal with it. It forces you to stop. And this is not a very fun hole to dig yourself out of. And unfortunately, it's one that a lot of dancers end up in. And it's a hole that I'm still trying to dig myself out of too. But The good news is that there are really simple ways, according to Porges, that we can use to improve our vagal tone and keep ourselves as much as we can in the state of sympathetic or, sorry, parasympathetic health, growth, restoration, and optimal coping. And it's as simple as using breathing exercises, getting good quality social interaction, getting playtime and movement variability, playing an instrument, singing, using intentional shifts in posture, like doing yoga, uh, and other neural exercises, as he calls them, as well as simply dedicating more time to your recovery and hydration and sleep and nutrition and rest and et cetera. Right. It's fantastic because when you think of tonic
1: immobility and and kind of the hard mm-hmm. parasympathetic, the dorsal vagal shutdown, it's also associated with metabolic conservation. Mm. So your body will really slow everything down so you can survive, you know, kind of the – the deep winter of your life. And um, as you do that, it also goes into like an oxygen conservation state, which means that you're kind of going against nature if you used force to try to free yourself from that. <laughs> so you sort of have to, to convince the, uh, the primitive, kind of the primitive um, survival mechanism that it's safe to come out. Yeah. Spring has come. <laughs> and this sort of um, negative self-talk that our culture um, has kind of conditioned us. There, There is rarely enough kindness and support, right, to come out from Dorsal Vago into the social engagement. There's sometimes the very social engagement that should carry you through is the one that threatened you in the first place.
2: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really true. And mm-hmm. I know that in a lot of – uh, in dance communities, especially, there it's. I'm not saying that all dancers are superficial, but there can be quite a lot of emphasis on superficial things, mm-hmm. like looking a certain way. And it's really easy to fall into patterns in dance circles of comparing yourself to other people. And even though you're friends, you're also you're each other's biggest competitors, and there's a lot of judgment and a lot of jealousy and a lot of emotions like that. So the social interaction that you're getting isn't necessarily the best quality, even though there's no way you can avoid it, and even though that social interaction is so necessary. But it's it might be hurting you unless you have ways that you can cope with it.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. One of my teachers um, talks about if, if humans had never entered the Industrial Revolution, like, or if we had even not moved to agricultural societies, but we had stayed sort of tribal, Mm -hmm. Uh, or hunter-gatherer, we would be known as the singing and dancing species. Wow. It is, um, you know, we talk a lot about in trauma about the role of dance in processing and how back in the day when somebody would leave the tribe to go somewhere or something bad would happen to them, they would come back to the village and they would get to share their story over and over and over again. Everybody would ask them what happened, you know, and then how did he hit you? And then how did you get wounded? And then what plants did you put on it? And then you'd get to relive your story and be able to process it hundreds of times with people. But then you'd also get You know, the the head shaman would make you some special tea and then you'd be painted with certain colors and then they would make you an amulet for protection. And then the whole tribe was very engaged with your healing and there would be a special dance in your honor and there would be a fire and herbs would be burnt in it. And there was this big, we had these healing rituals uh, in community and it sort of created this, you know, what we call the social synapse where we we can together heal and become bigger and, and have post-trauma growth. And now we're so isolated. There's so much shame, which is again, tonic immobility, about injury. It's like, I did something wrong. Mm-hmm. I should have prevented that. And so it puts so much pressure on you. So recovery becomes
2: very hard. Yeah. And not to mention that, especially for dancers, the after becoming injured, you often don't have the support that you need. So that just understanding that the the neural circuit for social interaction is the same neural circuit for recovery, you need to have supportive people in your life. You need to have the appropriate rehabilitation specialists that will support you in a a positive way. And it's also really common to feel Mm -hmm. guilty when we're injured, because we think that, oh, if we had better technique, it wouldn't have happened, and you have to sit out in class, and you feel sad because all your friends are dancing, and you have to sit there and watch, and you feel like the teachers are judging you because you're sitting out and not... Not participating in class but you also know that you probably should recover and rest but you're just torn between getting up and dancing and resting and it just makes you feel really really confused inside and you don't have the support and you don't know what to do so it really does complicate the recovery process for sure
1: yeah it's very very emotional and and our society as a whole doesn't make a lot of space for differentness and weakness um you know, It's like sir, we have this productive society where if you're not producing and if you're not awesome, there's, there isn't space for you. So there's a lot of shame and embarrassment around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it kind of goes into subcultures as well. Tell us a little bit more kind of for dessert uh, about mm-hmm. how you help dancers both online and offline. How can people learn more about your, um, your book that you offer on your website, your program? It's a 12-week program, am I correct? It's only four weeks. Only four weeks. So in my mind, I'm, I somehow made it bigger, but you do, it. You do, it. <laughs> do, it do three times Roland said.
2: Some people have done that.
1: <laughs> I, mean, um, I would have honestly probably done it for 12 weeks.
2: <laughs> so, yeah. So I, I work as a personal trainer and uh, I practice Thai massage in Toronto and Online I, I guess I, I created Dance Stronger, which is the it's a multimedia resource, so there is an ebook portion uh, and there is a four-week training program portion. And I created that with the intention of trying to share what I've learned with the world. And technology is so great that we can learn things on the internet. And unfortunately in Toronto, I found that there wasn't a lot of reception to people dancers wanting to make that space to work on themselves. And there also isn't really the budget as a dancer to, to hire someone that can guide you through that process of learning to become stronger in a safe way that will help you achieve longevity in your career. But there is this thing called the internet where you can reach many, many people around the world. And for some reason, my writing seems to reach people in the States and in Europe more than it does in my own city and in Canada in general. So I thought that was pretty cool. I should maybe take advantage of that and try to reach out to these people and share with them and see what happens. So that's what I did. And I think what Dance Stronger tries to... Tries to impart is not so much the techniques, not so much the exercises, which is why it's only four weeks. I just really was not, I didn't really feel it. I didn't really feel that I wanted to make it about the exercises. I wanted it to be more about understanding the why and understanding the how And not the how as in the exercises, but the how as in the how to approach the exercises and how to track your progress and make sure that the exercises that you're doing are actually helping you and how to not just go through the motions, how to cultivate the correct mindset that will help you to make progress. And I guess it was more about trying to show them what my process was and how they could start to create their own movement practice. And originally, the program did start out as just the exercises, and I had a group of people that were testing it out, and then I realized that I felt this incredible sense of dissonance that if I just gave people exercises to do and wrote a little description for each exercise, they would get nothing out of it. So I had to write a manifesto to go with it to get people in the right headspace and so that they knew... The amount of work that they would have to the, the, the intention they would have to cultivate going into a program. And I hope that I conveyed that because it, it really would make me sad if people just went into the program and just skipped all the reading and just went right into the exercises and just skipped everything that I felt to be the most important part. Like, honestly, the exercises, you could use any exercises, but it's your intention And how you do the exercise, that is more important. And you're an
1: incredibly eloquent writer, so I suggest to everyone to just read and
2: then exercise. I'm way better at writing than I am at talking. Isn't
1: that interesting? I'm way better at talking than I am at writing. But then again, English is my third language. There you go. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it takes me like two hours to write a chapter for we're in the final stages of, of publishing our new book. And it takes me like two hours to write a little chapter. It takes Roland five to edit it. Um, <laughs> so labor, labor of love there. So
2: people mm-hmm. can come to dance stronger. Yeah. Dance is where they can see that program, that resource I just mentioned, my blog and my like professional website is at danceproject.ca Cool. And how about Facebook and Twitter? Facebook and Twitter, I have those things. Uh, I'm less active on the Twitter. It's not the medium that I really prefer. But I usually try to interact a lot with people on Facebook because we have a really awesome community of just fantastic people. Uh, so Facebook, I don't know what the URL is, but I'm the only dance training project on Facebook, so you'll find me.
1: Yeah, very cool. And we'll put you in the show notes so that cool. Click and find. I know that you're planning to start your own workshops soon, mm-hmm. um, and hopefully, I can mediate and kind of facilitate you coming to California. I think that'll be very cool, especially if it's cold in Canada. I think it's <laughs> not really hard to lure you here. Not at all. No, you know, that would be fantastic. Right? Um, would you say just in a couple of words what those workshops will be? And um, I think that'll be cool to round out.
2: For sure. So recently, uh, a colleague and really good friend of mine, Wentzi Wong, we are started to, well, we both had this idea that we wanted to teach a group. But perhaps, as you know, group training can be quite frustrating because we wish that we could provide the in- individual attention to everyone so that everyone gets something personal out of the class and nobody has to go through that group exercise bullshit where they get injured because the teachers can't help them or they don't know how to do an exercise because there's like 50 people in the class like it's it's something that really turned us off from teaching group classes and when a yoga teacher and i've taught group fitness type stuff before too and it just really was not satisfying and then we both had this realization that we could teach group fitness, we could, or not fitness, but we could teach a group workshop if our intention was different, that instead of trying to teach everyone specific exercises, and instead of trying to have a cookie-cutter class that was sets and reps to the beat of the music, um, we could do something different. We could just have the intention of creating a positive experience for them where their bodies could react however they wanted to react. And that's exactly what our workshops are called, Create a Positive Experience, CAPE. So it's a multidisciplinary movement workshop that is four days long. Our pilot workshop's coming up at the end of uh, January, next weekend, actually. So we're oh, doing four consecutive Sundays, and we have our seven first participants. And it's going to be a blend of movement styles, breathing techniques. When does restorative breathing, we both our anatomy and motion people and nkt people and went is a yoga teacher and i am a personal trainer and dancers so we have a, a wide variety of things to play with with um our first group and really we just want these people to come into the workshop and have no expectations for what could happen but just to be open to exploring and seeing what could happen and seeing what kind of movements maybe their bodies are missing and what would happen if they tapped into them what kind of potential could they unlock so that's, that's where we're going awesome. with that.
1: That's super exciting. That's very, very cool. And um, I'd love to attend and facilitate.
2: <laughs> Amazing. You, you know,
1: whatever I can to to support you in in your mission. And I, I feel like just there's so many wonderful people out there. And one of the beautiful things that has happened in the last 10 years is there's this sort of interdisciplinary thing that's happening there were a lot more camps, like, back in the day. I've, I've been in this, you know, a good 15 years now. And it seems like there's way more intermingling now. Like, today we were in kind of a traditional um, sort of a strength and conditioning format class, yet the warm-up was like an animal flow warm-up. Mm-hmm. And that was really cool. Like, you couldn't see that five years ago. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people are, are growing and things are mingling and, you know, the old, you know, my way or the highway thing is, is kind of done.
2: Yeah. I think people are starting to realize, or maybe they don't realize, but they're just starting to to get the idea that giving your body options is really valuable. So the more variability you can get in your movement, the more options you're giving your body and the more it will be able to choose something appropriate for that particular moment as opposed to just being locked in a plank. Correct. Correct.
1: Yeah. The plank is my favorite. There's like a world record. <laughs> like, is it like four hours and some minutes? It's something. What? Yeah. It is something incredible. You should look it up after we hang up. It is like, just work, look like Guinness book of records.
2: Plank. Why? Why? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it could come in handy. No, I'm sure it's quite valuable to people to do that.
1: I, I, yeah. Like yeah. You're
2: trapped somewhere. Yeah, exactly. You lost, you know, you're fall off the
0: cliff if you don't hold the plank. Yeah, there you go. Saving that, lives. That happens a lot.
1: That happens a lot. Totally. If somebody fell off a cliff taking a selfie. I mean, it's like our physical awareness can literally save our lives, so...
2: There you yeah. go.
1: All of you out there, selfie takers, um, go on Monica's page. Get
2: <laughs> it, get <all> of <laughs> back yourself. Off the yeah. And throw yeah. your selfie stick out the window. There you go. So much fun talking to you.
1: I feel like we can, um, have you back again and talk about other aspects of your work, such as like the body work and time massage. And, um, as our new book comes out, um, we have a chapter pretty much on, on most things that you can do to get healthier. So we'll be interviewing a lot of specialists about how they view certain modalities. So it'll be really cool to have you back again.
2: Amazing. I can't wait to read your book when it's done.
1: We'll, we'll, we'll send it to you. We'll make sure that you get it.
2: Amazing. I can't wait.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Monica. Thank you. Have a fantastic rest of your um, night and uh, we'll talk to you soon.
2: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Bye. Bye.